You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome to Music Tectonics, Episode 3, where we look beneath the surface of music and technology. I'm Dimitri Vitsa, the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music technology and music and technology. And I'm so excited today. I have a very special guest, what I would consider to be the most prolific music technology journalist in America and also a very compelling storyteller on the industry of music and overlap with technology. Welcome, Sherry Hu. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sherry, you write for Billboard, Forbes, Music Business Worldwide, Variety, Pitchfork, and you also have your great uh, email newsletter, Water and Music. And I don't know if I was supposed to say this, but it looks like uh, you grew up playing the piano and played Carnegie Hall at age nine. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I did. Yeah. It feels almost like a past life at this point. But yeah, I grew up that I would say that's my main, at least first motivation to wanting to work in music and wanting to work in the music industry is having played a lot of music. And I I grew up mostly classically trained. Um, And so yeah, I did. I did several competitions when I was younger. And I did Juilliard pre college as well, um, throughout high school. So that was just a weekend program going into Manhattan every Saturday for classes and private lessons. And I was I was pretty close to pursuing that path professionally, actually, uh, as opposed to just doing like a standard college education. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I still I still hold that experience near and dear to my heart for sure. And it's definitely influenced a lot of even like what I write now and the music I listen to as well. You know, it's funny. I went to LaGuardia High School, which is just down the street from Juilliard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Music and the arts. Grew up playing uh, music as well. So it's funny. But it was probably 20 years before you were at Juilliard. Or no, maybe not quite that much since you, since you went there pre, pre-high school. And <laughs> But we were in the same neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Neighborhood. Very close. Yeah. I was coming in from uh, Flushing, Queens on the subway on the 7 train. Mm, mm, wow. <laughs> And then you you also did some work at Harvard. I did, yes. So I um, studied, uh, my major was in stats, um, and I minored in music as an undergrad at Harvard. And I also did a research program called Primo, which is an undergraduate research summer program at Harvard Business School. And it's one of those types of projects where the research top- the research topics are actually laid out ahead of time. There are like around 15 to 20 of them. And as an applicant, you pick your top three preferences. And the year that I decided to apply, which was after my sophomore year, I saw there was a project related to music and about uh, studying the financial history of the music industry, how it was impacted by streaming, by piracy as well. And then also looking at the individual artist level and trying to figure out how, as an artist, you sustain a career uh, in today's music industry. And I, th- I thought it was great that an institution like Harvard Business School was interested in that. And so I signed up for that. I spent a summer with their digital initiative, which is a research group that focuses on everything internet, digital related, but they, a lot of professors and researchers there were really interested in music as well. And I would say that was my first real deep dive into the music tech ecosystem, the startup ecosystem that was, yeah, so that was summer of 2015. And then it was after that, that I started uh, I, like I started my own super scrappy WordPress blog after that, just trying to jot down all these ideas about where I thought the industry was going. And uh, yeah, and th- that's sort of how I fell into writing was just doing a lot of research, really focused research for three months 
um, and wanting to share those ideas with the world. That's awesome. And you've quickly risen to, to be on kind of the, the tip of the tongue of everybody in kind of the music and technology spaces that, that follow this stuff. So um, you're killing it, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> much. And I don't know if you sleep because I'm t- I, I think you write more than I can read in a week. So <laughs> it's pretty impressive. I do. I try to sleep as much as I can, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so when I invited you onto the, the podcast, I was thinking since our last episode was a little bit about kind of what were some of the big news stories of the year, I was thinking, looking forward to 2019 and, and kind of uh, what to look out for. And then even after I invited you, I saw the, I, I really dig the Sync Tank blog. They did a future predictions, six top analysts slash journalists on the music industry trends to watch in 2019. So I guess other people are asking you this as well, but I, hopefully on the podcast, we have a ch- chance to stretch out a little bit. Um, on that topic. So, so let's just kick it off. Um, what, what are you, what are some of the things that you're looking to kind of look at closely in 2019? Yeah. Uh, it's really great and really big question. So ever since I've, I started writing like three years ago, one, I, one concept that has always been very ideologically interesting to me that I think is also showing itself in concrete practice more and more is the merging of music with other industries. So like a lot of my earlier pieces were centered around a question like, what can the music industry learn from the film industry when it comes to marketing or branding? What can the music industry learn from gaming when it comes to uh, monetizing effectively in the digital age instead of losing so much of your money to piracy, which gaming I don't think had that same magnitude of of issues at all as music did. And Mm so- I yeah I just I I studied this idea of merging industries from a theoretical level but then 2018 uh was really a watershed year for a lot of that coming to life and one example which is still in its early stage is the whole esports space like mm-hmm. there have been a ton of deals done this year between esports companies and music companies uh probably the most high profile recent example is this Twitch live streamer uh, who goes by the name Ninja, and mm-hmm. Ninja has uh, probably it's probably one of, if not the most popular channel on Twitter, and he's streamed with Drake, with Travis Scott, and he's uh, he's basically buddies with a lot of you know really, really high profile rappers in the music industry as well, and he just released his own compilation album with Astroworks, which I believe is under Capital Music Group, but it's like an official compilation album that you can stream on Spotify. And I just find that fascinating that not only is there merging of like the music and esports and gaming space in terms of marketing and branding partnerships, like simply just endorsing each other, or showing up in each other's videos, but uh, I presume Ninja's also earning money from this compilation album and he's actually seeing music as a viable altern- like alternate revenue stream to his primary revenue stream of being on Twitch. And uh, th- th- there's a lot of, the the way that music and esports merge together, it takes a lot of different forms. So there are also a ton of music and esports festivals, like festivals that are specifically dedicated to bringing the two spaces together that have taken place and or been announced this year or that are going to take place in 2019. I think mm-hmm. Insomniac is hosting a music and esports festival next year. Um, and so that the format of those is just having your standard, you know, festival bill of artists, but then also having an entire esports village or mini esports arena where both audience members and even maybe the performers can compete with each other in these tournaments. And 
I I just I, it's so interesting that uh, I think yeah this year much more than last year was the year that these two industries really wanted to come together. Oh, uh, Universal Music uh, started its own esports label as well. I think the focus is uh, more in Europe because they're partnering with an esports league in, from from Germany, but. They are also like really, they're creating a, a, a wholly separate department within their company dedicated to this intersection. So that's yeah. just, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. One of the things we talk about at Music Tectonics on our on our blog and and even on the podcast already is about how music's competing with everything now, um, mm. and how uh, you know what that means for marketing music and so forth. So it's I actually like this kind of trend in a sense, not necessarily because of my personal aesthetic or music listening, but just the idea that um, whereas there was a moment where uh, music was competing with Farmville or you know uh, <laughs> words with friends or you know with this explosion of apps. On, on smartphones and and people's attention was driven away from music or or or, or more towards you know the the Netflix and Hulu binging, binging and Amazon Prime binging and all that kind of stuff. Now you have a chance where it circles back around where the things that were competing, video games were competing with music, are now merging with new opportunities, new opportunities to build audience for music. And so it's cool to see the maturity of the music space. Um, as it relates to these other digital forms um, so that there can actually be not, not a sense of uh, competition in getting drowned in other types of content that takes people away from music, but a way that brings music back into the ways in which people um, are, are engaged digitally uh, outside of music. So another example of this is the increasing collaboration between the music and film and video spaces. And to me, there are two completely opposite, but I think complementary trends going on. And one is that some video content is getting shorter and shorter. And just as an example, Vine's co-founder is currently working on a new Vine clone, essentially, like a new version of Vine called right. Byte, E-Y-T-E. Mm-hmm. And uh, the I think he's making the max length of the videos on that app six seconds long. So he's already like forcing a shorter time span onto all the content on that platform versus a standard 10, 15, 30 seconds. And given the influence of these short form apps on the music industry, like how artists like Shawn Mendes were signed because they were discovered on Vine, I feel like that trend towards short form will continue to have a significant impact on just how artists are discovered and how A&R is done. And then, so then on the opposite end, you're also having music companies investing in longer and longer form content too. And as an example, in 2018, Live Nation has had a really successful film business. I actually had not known this, but it's been um, it's been an operation for around two and a half years, I think. And they've produced a lot of great documentaries with artists they've worked with, like Imagine Dragons and Lady Gaga. And they had a really uh, instrumental role in marketing A Star is Born as well and producing that. And so you're investing in documentaries and then also two movies this year, um, both comic films, Black Panther and the latest Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse film. They both also feature a ton of um, amazing artists and the soundtracks were really crafted and sculpted in collaboration with musicians and with labels, I feel, as opposed to it being more one directional, like a sync supervisor saying, oh, we need this track this kind of track to be the backdrop for this one scene at the beach. Like I, I, I got a sense that it definitely was a collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. That like happened from much earlier on. And 
the Black Panther soundtrack is Grammy nominated, I believe now. And so it's getting a lot of recognition. And I think 2019, now, now that a lot of artists and labels are seeing the value of investing in a huge, big budget projects like this from very early on, um, I think we'll see more of that in 2019, which I think is a great thing for, for both music and film. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I think it's kind of related to what we were talking about before with the fact that there were these separate silos before and now they're starting to merge together. And, you know, we saw, you know, a good five, 10 years ago, there was this boom in the use of music in television, both with commercials and uh, TV programs um, that clearly it became part of the artist. I mean, not this has been going on longer than that, but it was a real boom. It became part of the artistic um, differentiation of these different programs or commercials, music became central to kind of the identity of some of these shows and, 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 um, you know, ad agency productions and so forth. And again, yeah, that was kind of a shorter form, but, um, but it is interesting. And, and, you know, like with the shifts in what a music video was, it is, you know, compared to what it was, it's, it is interesting to think about a, a kind of a more, uh, integration, uh, centric uh, approach to music and, and film or any kind of moving picture. Mm, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, um, speaking of music videos, uh, you know, we've seen some interesting uh, uh, releases on li- live streaming, going, going a little bit back in our conversation to live streaming to see, to see premieres uh, where everyone's watching a, a video or video content altogether for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to bring this up. So yeah, I've been thinking so much about Ariana Grande's video for Thank You Next ever since it came out because, um, yeah, so it it came out using this feature on YouTube called YouTube Premiere, which enables channels to premiere a video live. Um, and it, the screen also features like a chat room where users who are watching in real time can chat with each other. Um, and they can even chat before the premiere actually happens. So creating that community before the launch, which is super interesting. Um, and then the video premieres live and then it just stays archived on the platform for people to watch later. And uh, the video for Thank You Next has broken all types of records. The song generally has been a viral sensation, breaking a lot of streaming records. But I I happened to, I just happened to be on Twitter when Ariana posted on her account, oh, uh, hey guys, the this video is premiering now on YouTube. You should go check it out. And so I clicked the link and at that time, the the video was already like a minute in and there were around 800,000 people watching at the same time. So instead of the instead of the you know standard viewership metric uh like the, the cumulative viewership metric it, it shows how many viewers are watching at the same time with you and that's just I, I think that's broken all of twitch's records from my understanding like i think drake and ninja hold the record for um the most watched like the most watched live video on twitch but it was only around uh quote unquote only like a hundred thousand which is still like a lot of people but it definitely was nowhere near how many people were tuning in uh, all at once within a span of just like five, 10 minutes to, to watch this video. So it was, it was a genuine cultural moment. And I think a lot of artists and labels and managers are seeing that and thinking about how they can create that same moment, like a shared moment. And there's, this is related to the bigger streaming environment because I'm, hearing more and more from artists that on on your standard, you know, dominant mass market streaming service, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera, it's, it is really hard to 
feel a connection to the artist or if you if you're seeking a connection with the artist as a fan who really enjoys um, that artist's music you cannot do it on that platform you have to go off platform you have to go to all the you know uh, the, the wide variety of social media platforms video platforms whatever um, and so I think as an artist if you're able to create the, this shared moment where these fans can find each other and and talk with each other I, I think that's really valuable especially for um, especially for like super fans of Ariana Grande like the chat room was going crazy there'd be like mm-hmm. dozens of messages going at the same time just commenting on the video in real time so yeah I think this this concept of uh, yeah, it's concept of, of creating a shared moment, um, these live moments where you can connect with your community of fans and enabling that community instead of discouraging it, I think is extremely important. It always has been, but I think in 2019 will be even more important. Yeah, you know what's interesting is the, the live streaming side. Uh, a few years ago, everyone was trying to figure out how to um, expand the monetization of live shows. And so everyone was talking about live streaming as it related to, oh, you can't make it to the concert or your favorite artist isn't coming to the town mm-hmm. near you. Why don't you watch and listen on, on live stream? And so many different platforms and startups were attempting to kind of capture that market, uh, pitching to venues that they could make more money because it, they'd get more people in the venue than they could fit, pitching to managers, agents, and artists that they could make more money because they could sell digital tickets as well as in person tickets. Mm. And uh, I'm sure it will happen. And then, and then even people talking about, oh, this is going to work best with virtual reality. You know, when you feel like you're mm. right there with everybody and you can look around and you can interact and it looks like, so, you know, you're sitting, standing next to someone who's holding a beer and dancing or whatever it is. Um, but it's so interesting that if you were thinking along those lines a couple of years ago, that this would come along as a more... Um, I don't know. I almost want to uh, call it like a digital native experience. Like, well, no, those people weren't in the concert hall anyway. They were just clicking through YouTube videos or they were just playing mm-hmm. a video. Game. So here it is in a, in a format that that kind of makes more sense for what their use is. Just in the flow, like you said, you found it on Twitter. They found it on YouTube, whatever it is. Yeah, that that's all such great points. And I, um, I'm realizing more and more that... Uh, and I think this is a pretty common idea in the wider world of marketing, but maybe not so much so in music. So, yeah. So thinking about the the example of like VR, yeah, the fact that there have been tons of companies trying to sell VR concerts. Um, Live Nation, AEG, all the world's biggest promoters have have been investing in this content. But I think if you're like when when you're when you're buying a ticket or okay as a festival promoter when you're selling a ticket to a festival, you're not selling a t- you're not selling a like necessarily access to um, these artists' festival sets. Like obviously that that's that's part of it, mm-hmm. but it's not the entire thing, right? Like you're you're selling the atmosphere for sure. You're selling um, the the feeling of you know, being able to freely move among all these stages, you're selling um, the merging of music, art, and food, which increasing number of festivals are doing. Mm-hmm. You're selling a social experience. Um, you're selling the ability to hang out with your friends. You're selling right. access to a very Instagrammable experience. Uh, that's maybe like a more something so more saying, bleak, but very true. So you're yeah. saying the, the digital uh, experience of just the concert without any kind of interaction, without anything else, is really not enough of a value proposition to a fan. I don't think so, no. And I think 
uh, but yeah, like thinking about just live streaming generally, uh, I, so one, just one general market, one continent that I'm always studying more and more is what's going on uh, across Asia in terms of like how people consume music and how people consume entertainment and what stands out to me there uh, in a way that is sort of permeating the U.S. Um, consumer base generally too is that people, uh, like everyday people, for example, in Korea, there's this whole scene of everyday people uh, making a living off of live streaming themselves just eating food. Like that is just ridiculous to me. Like, the, And some of it maybe is a little bit unhealthy. Like they're eating copious amounts of ramen, um, of just like, you know, cooked traditional Korean food. This is like a whole scene. But why they – like so people are paying them so much money because you have that sense of like intimacy and of access and direct communication with whoever is live streaming. And I think that is – that that is a value, obviously, of something like Twitch. Um, the fact that you can chat and the person who's live streaming can uh, directly see what everyone's typing in the forum and can respond directly to them. Whereas, if you're watching like a Coachella live stream, m- maybe the value proposition is different, but I think it definitely isn't as uh, maybe not as emotionally impactful mm-hmm. as like you know watching like a live streaming session with your with your favorite artist. I don't know. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, part of it too, is just seeing the, um, the new forms that emerge, uh, you know, with, with different platforms. So um, yeah, people eating food or people squishing bread into their face, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) whatever it is, it's like, wow, I didn't know that was a, an art or a, or or a thing. It's, you know, it's, it's happening in music too, but going back, going back to the VR and maybe even AR, I'm curious to see what, what you think about, I mean, there's kind of a, there was a slowdown in interest in a way, or maybe it switched mm-hmm. from excitement to criticism for some of this stuff and um, across the board, but in music, I'm curious to see or, or hear a little bit about what you think we could look out for in 2019 as it relates to either VR and AR merging, since we're talking about these, um, you know, how music overlaps with other um, forms. Um, what, what are your thoughts on where we might see that go in the next year? Yeah, that's such a great question i think it's still an open question and this was the topic of an article that i wrote recently on forbes and um one argument that i made for why yes why all this buzz was dying down around vr and ar and music is that people or people at these mostly larger companies that have the funding to support these high budget vr uh projects were sort of copying and pasting experiences that had worked before into a medium with so much potential, but whose potential was just not really, not really taken advantage of. So mm. um, like one example is, is Melody VR, like, which looking like a looking, looking at like a two dimensional, uh, a two, two dimensional image through a three dimensional viewer or something like that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Or uh, like a ton of, VR applications just generally not in music have just been um, 360 degree videos uh, that you could otherwise just watch on your phone right. in uh, that, that like weren't interactive at all that like one, one defining characteristic of VR for me, um, which is actually possible in, in most other digital media, but is the ability, yeah, the ability for the user to interact, the ability for the user to create their own 3d objects almost and to like interact with them in this 3D environment. Um, 
And yeah, I just I haven't really seen that in a lot of VR music apps to date. Like the I... so like there's one exception. Um, so th- this one company that I really like called the Wave VR. Have you heard of the Wave? Yeah. yeah. Or tried it? Okay. Yeah. I haven't so, tried it. Okay. Yeah. So it's that's a really great experience. And what is really interesting to me about what they're building. Um, so the CEO Adam Arigo, I interviewed him for an article several months ago, and he um, insisted that what the Wave is trying, what the Wave VR is trying to build, is not at all uh, like what you'll see in real life. It's like very intentionally not real. It's like everything is animated. Um, that the the visual possibilities, the fact that you can, so they were the official app for Ready Player One, um, Steven Spielberg's adaptation mm-hmm. of the book um, that came out earlier this year as well. And so they recreated the zero gravity nightclub called the distracted globe that was in the film. So you could like fly around in this um, like spherical nightclub in VR. And the the, the surprising number, uh, a surprisingly low number of VR apps that take advantage of the VR environment in that way. And and most of them, you just still like walk around instead of like, oh no, you're actually able to fly and sort of be able to see anything from any perspective. Um, I think, yeah, we're we're seeing only really like early experience, early experiments with that. And I think there's a lot more potential to be explored. It's tricky to know where that's going to go because people aren't used to buying a VR experience that it's not a game, not a song. It's not a concert. It's this other sort of like simulation into a sci-fi experience (laughs) in a way. And, and, and so people, you know, there's no, there's no platform for it. There's no YouTube for it really. And, um, there's also the barrier of having, uh, some hardware to go with it, which is something that I've, uh, I've thought about a lot. Um, especially yes. when Pokemon go took off thinking about how mm-hmm. accessible augmented reality is because you don't need anything other than the phone you already have. Um, mm-hmm. haven't seen a ton take off there on the music side yet either, but I could see that just because the access is so easy to just use your phone. Of course, it's not going to be as much of a, 360 experience without a headset um but i don't know have you seen any any ar um implementations in music that that make you think there's a potential for um traction so i i do know there is uh just growing investment generally in um ar lenses or ar apps for music for sure like more and more people on the marketing side like want to make ar applications that go with an album release the only so interestingly, the 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 one company that's really been pushing this on the music side is Snap, which a lot of people claim is still on the decline, um, like financially and just in terms of like user engagement. But uh, they so Snap did their first ever music industry like speaking event ever. They so they had a keynote at Medem this year in June. It was Neil Jacobson, who's the president of Geffen Records, and Ben Schwerin, who's a VP of partnerships at Snap. And uh, it, and they were talking about a new partnership with a new rapper named uh, Youngblood, I believe. Um, mm. And it was making a new lens uh, centered around c- centered around one sort of lyrical excerpt from one of his new songs um, that any fan can download and can, can download and incorporate into their videos. And conceptually, it, it was really interesting in that uh, in especially tying the AR lens to lyrics, you are uh, like really like solidifying and structuring um, the the this notion of an earworm, right? Like a lot, like all these catchy songs, they have these 
earworms that come up naturally in terms of these hooks that you know get stuck in everyone's heads and everyone's singing when they're like walking down the street but then now with this sort of short form ar lens experience uh it's it's pretty interesting that, that the artist and label can dictate okay th- no this is the part of the song that we think is either the most interesting or the catchiest or that'll be like the coolest for you to include um, in your own videos that you're sending to your friends. And I think Neil Jacobson claimed that uh, in the future, like the the impact of these types of lens could be uh, akin to like landing like a TV commercial or even like it'll be like a future like Super Bowl ad placement. He he was like really ambitious with uh, with the power of AR lens in this social context, hmm. which was interesting. I'm not sure if I completely agree with like that scale, but I, I do agree with um, the power of incorporating uh, incorporating an artist's image and artist brand into into an environment where friends are already like sending silly videos to each other and like having right. that really tight in the community. Yeah, I mean it, it makes a lot of sense. I don't feel like, um, with the exception of the the kind of the TikTok type of experience, and and I guess you could almost say YouTube in a sense. It, I don't feel like the 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 social um, the social network kind of an app space has really, um, captured uh, music audience as music per se yet. But I do think you're right. I mean, it's, it, it relates to kind of like the theme throughout your conversation today, where you have these areas that it's really about overlapping music into other experiences. So it makes sense that it will happen. We will see something big like that. And maybe 2019, will be the year for that. Um, things are, things, things are moving pretty quickly. So that's, that's a good, I think that's a good example. Not necessarily like that's definitely going to be the thing to take off, but sort of the reminder of, yeah, you, you don't expect everything to, to kind of, um, emerge the way that it has linearly in the past, <laughs> something else pops up and it's like, Oh wow, that's an experience. Nobody, nobody even thought would happen with music. And it's just great that there's enough people trying things that we will see growth areas for music and for creators as a result of that. Um, you know, in the sync tank piece, you brought up a couple other areas to look out for in 2019. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about just to comment a little bit on them. One of them you talked about was artificial intelligence, I think specifically on the, the creation side of music. Um, and interestingly, uh, Glenn Peoples, um, also commented on artificial intelligence. I think you guys took mm. different perspectives on it in that piece. Um, but, but what, what were you thinking about, um, in terms of how that's going to, you know, uh, roll kind of unfold in, in the coming year? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, uh, regardless of what people think about the quality of the music that's coming out of that space, it's definitely early stages in terms of, um, like, I don't think an artificial intelligence right now can compose a convincing three minute pop song and put it on the radio and like have it sound good enough to stay on the radio. Like I I don't think it's definitely at that point yet, but there's been a lot of progress made and there are both. It's just fascinating to me that there are both like smaller startups with like much smaller teams raising VC funding um, to work on this problem of uh, whether an AI can write a pop song and you have big tech companies, like probably the the um, the most prolific research group in the space is at Google. It's under Google's Magenta Group, which is working with artificial intelligence and creativity more broadly. Like they've done a lot of um, really groundbreaking research around AI and drawing, like whether an AI can autonomously draw or paint a convincing picture that's indistinguishable from humans. Um, and they have a really big music, uh, I guess, team within 
that general research group Magenta as well. And so there's just more and more capital going into this space. Um, I'm surprised that labels aren't embracing it more. So like my, my fear is that uh, what will happen is similar to what happened with Napster and how labels initially just like push the technology away entirely. Um, they either like didn't really like believe in it, didn't want to deal with it, or they were suing people like crazy to try to, you know, bring the company down instead of really embracing it and trying to figure out how they can um, collaborate with that whole, you know, phenomenon of just downloading and sharing music for free, how they can make it benefit them. And I, worst case scenario is a similar thing will happen with, in the AI generated music space where some sort of tech company or just yeah, independent software developer will develop um, this program that can, two important things, a program that one, not only can, you know, compose music autonomously on its own, compose uh, like, you know, a convincing chord progression or convincing melody. Um, but then also, I think the end game for a lot of these companies is to democratize that technology um, and make it use, useful as a tool to anyone who wants to write a song the same way that the rise of Dawes, like GarageBand, Logic, Ableton, democratized music production to so, so many more people. And so I think it's going to have that similar democratization effect. And worst case scenario is the company that um, develops that technology and rises the most quickly is um, not owned by any of the traditional music companies, right. it's like not a record label or publisher. And then the labels and publishers sort of like push back against that. And they're like, no, we, oh, we see you as a threat. We, um, we should try to like shut you down. I think I I think a smart thing to do would be to bring more of that technology in house. Actually, like if th thinking with like a labels hat on, I think it would be a lot smarter to bring that technology in house to try to incorporate it um, into you know music, into like into production of of the albums that they're releasing. And I I, I understand in part why that isn't happening because there are a ton of legal issues that come around that and like philosophical issues, like the, the highest level is what does it mean to be creative? If you can press a button and a new song is automatically generated, does that make you creative? Like why or why not? So it's one. And then two, um, who owns the copyright yeah. on automatically yeah. generated song? That is still a really open debate and different countries I know have different interpretations of that. So there's just, there are a lot of unanswered questions, but uh, they, they, they're, they're gaining more awareness. There's more debate around it whether at, you know, music industry conferences or in articles generally, which I'm very excited about. But um, I think it's definitely better to think about this sooner rather than later. And from the the rights holder side, maybe to invest in that type of technology earlier on. Well, and you know, it's it, this has more of a technological flavor to it, but how different is this conversation about what is art, what is music, who, who, who's allowed to be called creative or is your art with a capital A or not? That's happens every generation or every couple of generations mm -hmm. with new styles of music, new, uh, you know, adopting new ways of making music. I mean, you know, you could say the same thing is still, we're still in the, uh, uh, era in which DJs are not considered musicians, but it really depends what the DJ is doing, of course. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know, if you, even if you look at, you know, like the adoption of a turntable or even a tape reel as a musical instrument, um, where people are slicing apart what they thought was just kind of an artifact for creating music is actually, uh, 
mm. making the music, not not just recording or documenting the music or playing back the music, you know. So, I mean, the, the kind of technological shifts in, in terms of how music's getting created have already been, you know, debated in previous generations. And, you know, there's still people today who will make disparaging comments about one style of music or another. Um, and so in a way it's kind of funny because, uh, artificial intelligence being integrated into music creation, uh, applications is not that different really in a way. It's like, well, yeah, maybe it's a little more virtual than something physical, like a turntable being used to create music. But, um, and, and I do think it does, like you said, it goes finer to the, the point of, well, what is creativity? What is art and who, who owns it? And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the agreements between the companies who create the software that allow you to use artificial intelligence to make music, um, and the people who are actually the software users who owns which portions of it, um, from an intellectual property and royalties, uh, and copywriting standpoint, uh, those will be interesting debates. There may be different applications that differentiate themselves based solely on that, on that measure. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I think it's interesting. And I think, I think you're right. I mean, it may be, uh, I mean, you know, from a creator standpoint, if there's a musician who's spent decades mastering their art, um, and building up an audience and, and so forth could feel very threatened by the idea that somebody else can just pick the right software and all of a sudden they're making original music. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely threatening. And it's not the same thing necessarily, but ultimately if somebody likes that music or uh, 800,000 people like that music being live streamed or whatever the next method of consumption is, um, then it's, it's certainly going to take off. So yeah. interesting points. Um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about one more because I, I, I've been talking about this one for a while and you brought it up in sort of your kind of things to watch in 2019, which is kind of looking at different uh, markets around the world. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're seeing there and what we might look at and see in 2019. Yeah, uh, for sure. So yeah, I think looking at international markets uh, is so important. And I guess starting off, it is very interesting to me that if uh, so looking at a company like Spotify, for instance, which is the current global market leader when it comes to paid music streaming in terms of number of subscribers, they I think it's only 11 percent of their total user base comes from a category that they call rest of world, which includes um, all of Asia, all of Africa, Australia, um, and I think. Yeah, I think those are like sort of the main. So like 11%, only 11% of their user base is outside North America, Europe, and Latin America. Um, and so it's definitely very skewed. But I think the, the rest of world uh, carries like the vast majority of the world population as well. So just thinking about like the potential market of people that a company like Spotify could potentially be reaching or that a music streaming service could be reaching um, just the scale of it is definitely really interesting and important to think about. And and also in all these quote-unquote rest-of-world markets, you have um, a really vibrant um, and maybe even a little fragmented sometimes ecosystem of local streaming services. So mm. if we're looking at China, for instance, um, Tencent Music just went public this month, um, and a lot of people are comparing their performance um, as a company that is profitable but not because of streaming, because of actually their more socially oriented live streaming apps, which allow users to tip their favorite streamers within the app and to send micropayments to each other. That's generated a ton of profit for Tencent Music, whereas Spotify 
um, is still is still in the red, um, has been in the red for its entire existence, and it's it's still scrambling to find a profitable business model. So that's just one point of comparison. Um, Tencent was interesting to me as well. If you look at uh, the music streaming trends in international markets, is the vast majority of companies um, are owned by uh, tech conglomerates. So like Tencent, Tencent Music is owned by Tencent Holdings, which also owns WeChat, which is the biggest messaging service in China. And I know a ton of, um, a lot of like, you know, Chinese people across the diaspora around the world are using WeChat and um, almost every other major streaming service, like Xiaomi is owned by Alibaba, NetEase Cloud Music is owned by um, NetEase generally, which is also one of the world's biggest game developers. And so that'll be an interesting trend to watch in terms of what happens when these big tech companies um, have such huge influence on music consumption. Whereas, at least in the US, I do get this sense of, um, even though Spotify isn't making any money, no, Western streaming service really is. Um, it's, It's one key asset is being a pure play music company and not having any other economic incentives like oh we got to sell these smartphones or we got to sell these smart speakers or like a pure play music company but that's the exception and definitely not the rule in a lot of these markets and just to um call out one other market i just recently published a piece about um the music industry in the middle east just Mm. because there's been a ton of new expansion into that market so spotify and deezer both launched within a month of each other um, in the middle east and north africa and Warner Music Group has also opened a new office in the Middle East covering 17 countries there, I believe. And um, and so also that's interesting because now there's all this local activity, but also there's a local service uh, called Angami that for sure captures a lion's share of um, music streaming. Um, and there's also YouTube, which uh, if we're thinking about the Middle East, if we're also thinking about... Um, sorry, my... Are you still recording? Yes. Okay, sorry. My screen just like went black for some reason. Oh. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, there might be a little bit, little bit of editing to do. That's okay. 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 And so what's interesting about all these Western services coming in is that there's also a lot of local competition. So there's one service in the Middle East that's local based in Lebanon called Angami that has over 70 million registered users i believe um but it captures for sure the lion's share of local music streaming and also like many other surrounding markets uh, the vast majority of people are not paying to stream they're either using legal ad supported channels or they're um, pirating music piracy is for sure still a relatively significant problem in the middle east as well as in china and a lot of markets around there so yeah there's a ton of activity uh and a ton of investment and I think there is consensus that there will be a really long path to go away from this uh, so piracy-heavy market to mm. one where you have the majority of users um, paying for music in some way, like even if it's not a significant amount, um, just paying in some way. I think there's agreement that that like that is sort of the destination, and there's a really really long way to go given like a fraught history with piracy. So well, and yeah. And- I'm, yeah. And Mark Mulligan at Media Research is uh, is talking about a slowdown, still still strong market for streaming, but a slowdown in growth um, for the U.S. market. And uh, looking at 
US, UK slowing down while uh, countries like Germany, Japan, Brazil, Mexico growing strongly. And then I think you're talking about markets that may not be growing strongly yet. Well, with the exception of China, of course, um, but that are that are like starting to get the infrastructure in place and starting to get traction with users, understanding um, a different way of, uh, of, of uh, consuming music in a way that uh, creators and rights holders get get paid. And and uh, Africa, too. I'm, uh, we, we're uh, working mm-hmm. with a company called Boomplay that's capturing a lot of the streaming market mm-hmm. in Africa as well. So that's another another market to look look at as well. So, well, uh, Sherry, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing some insights into sort of what you've been thinking about uh, this year and, and looking into 2019. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I just went off and said, Sherry, who, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it who or Hugh? Uh, it's who. Yeah. It's, okay. I got it right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, what's the best way for people to kind of tap into, to what you're doing and, and follow your, your thinking and writing? Yeah. So, uh, best way would be to follow my email newsletter. Cause that gives you a direct line of contact to me, just to my email address. You can find it through a link on my website. Um, which is sherryhu.com, C-H-E-R-I-E-H-U.com. And I'm also on Twitter all the time, maybe too much, uh, but you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at sherryhu42. So that's C-H-E-R-I-E-H-U and the number is 42. Awesome. And read all the music trades because, and some of the business ones as well, because Sherry's writing in so many of those too. Really great, great to, uh, to follow all the, all, all your thinking and, um, storytelling on, on those platforms. Um, and, uh, if you want to keep up with what I'm up to, uh, take a look at rock, paper, scissors.biz, B-I-Z. Um, you can also check out the music tectonics blog, musictectonics.com. There's also a email sign up there to keep up with the podcast and, uh, events we're a part of was excited excited to run into you, Sherry, at the New York Music Tech uh, meetup a, a few weeks ago, which yes. we, we hosted MC'd over at Daily Motion and had Dubset and Stemmit and shout out to, to Seth from Audio Drops, who's done a great job at creating that community. Uh, I guess you go to that one a lot, huh, Sherry? I do. I Well... Uh, I should go to more. Yes, but I've been to quite a lot this year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's great. So, all right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, uh, Come back and listen to Music Tectonics again. And uh, Sherry, thanks again. We look forward to seeing you at the next industry event. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Listening to music tectonics.